sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You bruised half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. It's Brian. It's Murdoch. What's up, everybody? Rumor and innuendo about your favorite bands and your favorite songs. I have Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I have so many working projects for this show because the audience... You're givers. We love you. You're givers. Uh, you, Thanks for writing listener mail. It's like, I feel like how David Letterman must have felt so cool having viewer <laughs> mail. Like, this feels so cool. It's like this... Should we talk about our friend who unearthed the videotape of being on viewer mail in like 1992? Our buddy Dan? Did you see that recently? Yeah, I did. Our, a, a mutual friend of ours who, by the way, probably came up with the entire idea that got us... We were podcasting over a decade ago anyway. He oh, yeah. wrote a letter. To, he wrote a letter to Dave Letterman when he was what was he in middle school? Was he in? No, he was like in oh, high school or college. Yeah, he was teenageish, teenagerish, and David Letterman read his like and showed it. You know, he actually showed the thing. So, by the way, thanks for writing letters and listening and uh, leaving reviews and everything. We really appreciate it a whole bunch. Yeah, you're the best. But because of that, uh, I, I've got a lot of projects going on. I'm researching a lot of stuff. I'm like trying to plan out what the back half of this year is going to look like. I can't believe we're almost through the first half of this year. Um, yeah. and, and, and so I'm in the middle of all these projects. And then the other day, I come across mention of what we're going to talk about today. And I like if I'd been drinking something, I would have done a spit take. And I was like, yeah. if this is a real thing, I'm canceling all plans. And we're moving this to the top of the stack. And I have gone into the deep end researching this over the past few days and it's it has blown my mind so with that's a lot of buildup and that's, i hope i don't let of, you down that's a whole lot of hyperbole so i'm i'm ready so <laughs> so so we have a letter we have a we no 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 so i i just, just ran it's a, it's a thing it's a I, thing you heard i just heard about it yeah, and i was like it. it could this possibly be true okay so it's like part true crime part balling on a budget part a harbinger of things to come with a band who will go on to make a career out of doing things like this that are shocking and sensational, right? It's wild. And it's kind of hard to know where to start. I'm ready, man. This is great. Okay, here's where we're headed. 1989. Where were you in 1989? Tell me a little about yourself. So I'm 15. So I've almost got a car, so I'm almost ready to run away from home. Dead sexy? How much do you weigh? How much do you weigh at 15? 100? 107 pounds. Great. Me Um, too. So in '89, that's that's girls, girls, girls. So mm. I think is that right? Yeah. yeah. So I so that tour was around then. So I was still listening to metal. Yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So and you were in a little town, but you were in a little town in Tennessee. Right. Okay. Is there farming in Lewisburg, Tennessee? No. I mean, you have to leave. There's a. I mean, there's a town. You have to leave the town. Okay. The but there's farms around it. Sure. Okay. So we had one. Where we're going is north. Okay, we're going north to a place called Burr Oak, Michigan. Now, if you think of Michigan as the mitten, you're going to be down near the middle of the wrist, right? Not too far from Indiana. Just okay. kind of right above sure. Indiana. That's easy. These days, the population of Burr Oak, I looked this up, is less than 800 people. 768 is the, the newest number I, I could get. That's unincorporated. In 1989... There might have been a hundred more, but Burr Oak has never been a big place, and it's never had a boom. Really, it's it's stayed right around the eight hundred mark. Now, this is where a guy named Robert Reed was born and raised. He was born in nineteen oh nine. He graduated from Burr Oak High in nineteen twenty nine. 
thought he was going to be a funeral director, but his high school sweetheart suggested he find something less creepy to dedicate his life to. And you know, like a lot of men, he took some direction from the important woman in his life. So yeah. what does what does a guy in Michigan with a little land and uh, no dead bodies to tend to, what, what, what does he do? He becomes a farmer. Uh, and, <laughs> and he does this his whole life. Now, I told you our story takes place in, in 1989. Mm-hmm. And, and I just told you that, that Robert was born in 1909. So if you're a math whiz, you might already know he is 80 years old on the night in 1989 when he sees something flicker in the sky and then crash into a field on his land. <laughs> what? This is like the beginning of a dang M. Night Shyamalan movie, all right? Robert's, all right. A, Robert's a little concerned. He heads out of the house to investigate what just crashed into his crops. And what he finds are some weather balloons. You, you familiar with weather balloons? Yeah, that's, you didn't see a UFO, President Carter. You saw a weather balloon. Exactly. Yeah, I'm familiar exactly. with weather balloons. Okay, yeah. so who yeah, knows know what, what they really are. Who knows what's going... <laughs> <laughs> who knows what's going through Robert Reed's head at the time, but he starts sort of digging through this mess of weather balloons and pulling there's some strings and and he realizes that attached to the weather balloons is a Super 8 camera. Now, huh. keep in mind, drones, not a thing every 11-year-old has access to in 1989 like they do in 2022, right? Aerial surveillance of anything more complex, more expensive back in the day. So when Robert Reed sees this contraption in his corn, he actually has a theory pretty quickly about what happened. Now, like I said, Baroque, a small town, a town full of from rumors and innuendo, much like our podcast, I would assume, right? Because it's a small town. Did, did, were, were there town rumors in Lewisburg when you were growing up? Was there yeah, like the sure. watch out for that guy down the end of the road because one time he did this thing to a goat? Like what? What were what were the rumors that you heard in your small the, town? I can give you one, and it's all you need, and that would be the Chapel Hill Light. And the Chapel Hill Light was a story that was created sometime whenever it was. There was a man, and he was walking along the train tracks in Chapel Hill, which, by the way, is where Nathan Bedford Forrest is from. You can go see his house mm. and dead body. And I'll get right on there. there. Yeah, okay, good. Apparently at night, you'll see him, and he has like a, a lantern, and he's looking for his head because <laughs> his head got cut off at the, at the railroad tracks. You and, went full-on ghost story. I just thought somebody was sleeping with somebody. You're like full-on, like, here is the, the scariest Halloween-themed uh, anecdote that gets passed around. Oh, yeah. That's the best rumor. Easy. Uh, I, I like it. Um, okay, so I'm assuming that there were a lot of rumors in this town, but one of the rumors that Robert Reed knew was that some of the other local farmers, not him, of course, but some of the other local farmers had been growing weed. Now, of course, when asked, all of these farmers would claim that this was an accident, that it was wild weed, which I didn't even know was a thing. <laughs> Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> How many times did that work as a defense? As a defense, uh, but they would say that it was encroaching on their land, and they just weren't aware. Right? Sure, buddy. Um, so, because of this rumor, Robert Reed thinks, and this is a, this is the mind of an eighty-year-old man in the middle of the night, probably right. But Robert Reed thinks that this is the local police. He thinks they're launching some rudimentary late '80s spyware to make sure that no local farmers are flaming up on their own supply. I like him already. I, I, I like that that's where his head went. So 
What's he do? Robert Reed has, I don't know what his general personality was, but I do know that he's been around for 80 years, so he doesn't, I mean, his, his BS meters, you know, it doesn't take a lot, right? So he's like going straight to the source. He calls the police and says, hey, come get your crap. Now, I think the cops thought this was funny. I can picture like a windbag sergeant making fun of this 80-year-old man who would actually think that the cops would do something dumb and reckless and out of date in the pursuit of a futile and counterproductive cause because when do cops ever do that? Uh, But they do offer to come take the gear off his hands because there's a videotape involved. And after all, who knows, there might be some fun stuff on there. So they come to his land, they grab the balloons, they collect the camera, they get the gear, and they go back to the station house. And I I also like to imagine when I'm thinking about this that they immediately pop some popcorn and then they put the tape in the VCR and they're like, let's see what this dim-witted old farmer found. And they press play. And suddenly, things get very weird. Okay, what's happening? I'm going to read verbatim now from the Tom Thompson Far Out Magazine piece. They pressed play on the footage and were greeted by the sight of two leather-clad criminals standing over a grossly disfigured cadaver sprawled out on the concrete floor. Strewn across the face of the victim was some unknown substance, and the two men leering over the body appeared to have a distinctive badge on their leather biker jackets. There's another piece that describes the incident this way. A city street at night, a lifeless male body with a mysterious substance strewn across his face, two black-clad men standing over the body as the camera swirls away up into the sky, with a third individual seen at the edge of the frame running away, seemingly as fast as possible. And suddenly, the state police go from making fun of an old guy to thinking they have a gang killing on their hands. It's on tape. On tape. They start really looking at the surrounding on this video and they notice something. It takes them a minute, but they figure out that there's something in the background that is, in fact, the L. Public transport in Chicago? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Have you ever been on the L? I sure have. So this tape was filmed 100 miles or more from where it was found. So remember, I told you it's in lower Michigan. and Chicago? And it looks like it was filmed in Chicago. So... Suddenly, the Michigan State Police have to call in Chicago cops. Now, when they start watching the video, Chi-Town police are able to place a few more landmarks, and they narrow down the, the location to a very specific area in Chicago. They say it's an alley in Fulton River District. So now, they start trying to play match the homicide. What reports had come in from this area in this time period that might line up to be what we're watching on the tape. Does this have anything to do with Dave Matthews dropping poop on people in Chicago? No, but my wife wants us to do that episode so bad. She brings that up all the time. (laughs) So funny. No. Splash. No. Into me. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, splash. Into me. (laughs) So splash. Okay. Uh, Okay. So... We, we've we all seen enough copaganda movies to know what happens next, right? They come up with nothing. And so the FBI has to show up. <laughs> Partly because the cops need the expert 
help in enhancing the video footage. Now, I like to imagine there was a big fight about jurisdiction. I did not find this in the research, but I want to imagine that there was like this conversation where someone says, don't you know who runs this town? Blah, 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 and so on and so forth. But, but it does in fact happen that now the Federal Bureau of Investigation does indeed start investigating. All of their experts start watching and rewatching and watching again this thing that they're now thinking is a snuff film. The snuff film the old farmer found for them. From a weather balloon. Okay. Footage is grainy. Technology is lacking. But these experts do come up with some theories. First, theory one. Remember I said there's a weird substance on the body? Yes. They think it signifies decay. The body at the time of filming must have been dead for a while, which is weird because the body's near the L. So why do these gang members pull a decaying body into a populated space? Doesn't make any sense. Next, what was this dang insignia on the biker jackets? And there was another question above all of this. What kind of gang or cult artistically shoots this sort of thing on a Super 8 camera? Like, what would be the purpose of this? Uh, I don't know. This is so weird. So it goes on for a while, and it starts to get close to two years, and the FBI feels the pressure to find some sort of answer and so they finally resort to one more tactic straight out of a semi-questionable action movie. They print up flyers. <laughs> now, law enforcement says they do not like to do this for obvious reasons. It freaks people out. Draws attention not just to danger, but to their inability to crack a case. So they don't like it. But they feel like they are out of options. So they take stills from the video, and they put them on paper, and they start handing them out at colleges in the area. Have you seen this man? Have you seen this man? That style of stuff. And lo and behold, it turns out they find an art student who had seen this guy. Hmm. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you today by Athletic Greens and their product, AG1. If the pandemic taught me anything, it's that my immune system needs to be in tip-top shape, and AG1 helps me get there. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens, they're all there, and bonus, it does not taste bad, which is really good. Uh, it's lifestyle-friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, any of that stuff, contains less than one gram of sugar and helps better sleep quality and mental clarity and alertness. Really good when you're doing a lot of rock and roll research. It's important to me, right? Uh, so listen, it's time for you to reclaim your health. Arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. Just one scoop, cup of water every day. That's it. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do, athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Go check it out and just make sure you put athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Now, back to the show. So let's pause where we've been and bring in a couple of other characters into this story. We're going to change, oh. we're going to change the setting. We're going to leave that there. We're going to leave the mystery behind for a moment. Bring in Eddie Money, Cindy Lauper, <laughs> and whoever you have to bring in to lighten what, this up. What if, what if that's... And now we bring in the cocaine. band Kajagoogoo. <laughs> yeah. And now cocaine from the 1980s. <laughs> okay. So I, I want to introduce you to two guys. Two guys. One guy's named Ben, Ben Stokes, and the other guy's name is Eric Cosiel. And in 1989, they were going to school together at the Art Institute of Chicago. 
and they were in a band together. <laughs> I love the name of their band. The name of their band was UNG, U-N-G-H, exclamation point, all capitals. UNG. Okay. Now, they have a little success, and they get really close to a record deal, and they start thinking, huh, how can we leverage our love of music and those expensive degrees that our parents just paid for? And so they start making their own music videos to get some attention. Now, UNG doesn't end up working out, but they did enough video work when they were together to get the attention of other musical artists who want to commission them. And suddenly, these two dudes, Ben and Eric, are building a company together. A company that's going to go on to be called H-Gun Labs. Now, H-Gun, I want to point out, is UNG rearranged in a much less confusing and easier to say way. Yes. Uh, And over the next 12 to 15 years or so, these guys become pretty big force in the industry. They're going to do work for most major networks, including MTV, Lifetime, Nickelodeon. They're all over the map. But in the early days, their client list is full of bands. I'm going to give you the first line and a half of about 10 lines of text of bands these guys worked with. And this is just the first line and a half. Ministry, Latour, Revolting Cox, Public Enemy, De La Soul, Megadeth, Killing Joke, Meat Beat Manifesto, never gotten to say their name on this show before, Anthrax, KMFDM. Wow. It's a, it's Sounds a, like my radio show in college. <laughs> right? It's it an is. absolutely... You could make a pretty good hour out of the, the just a line and a half of people they worked with. The list is absolutely nuts. But they're building this reputation, and they get the attention of an upstart keyboard player out of Cleveland who'd been recording music in between paid sessions at a recording studio where he was actually the assistant engineer slash janitor. So he'd taken this job to get his foot in the door. Listen, I can't imagine that job interview. Listen, we'll let you touch the knobs after you wash your hands from cleaning the toilets. Uh, so he, the other thing, I, I don't think he got paid a lot because the guy who owned the studio also tells this guy that in between sessions and you know after hours, he can actually use the studio for free. So he's coming in at night by himself, and he doesn't really have the resources or energy to find a full band. So taking inspiration from Prince, who was making headlines around this time in the mid-'80s, he's recording every instrument in part on his own. So he's creating this live band sound, sort of, in the studio, and he's doing it all solo. Now, Cleveland, right? Cleveland. So he does his first live performance in late '88. He then gets a shot opening for Skinny Puppy, which is a band he loves. And these demos that he's created at night in the studio when he's not cleaning the toilets start getting attention from record labels. And pretty quickly, Trent Reznor signs his musical project to TVT Records. I wasn't going to blow the whole thing, but I was like, oh, yeah, he was a janitor and it was at night. So. You fi- you figure Okay, so that's when you figured it out, is the janitor yeah. at night. Okay. Yeah. And he, yeah. So... Do you know the story on how Nine Inch Nails got his name? I don't. Now, there's different versions. Reznor says he just made up the name because it was easy to abbreviate. But, of course, that's a really boring answer. So the world at large has made up a lot of other reasons that sound much more nefarious, but probably aren't true. Here's a few of them. One of them, a reference to Jesus' crucifixion with Nine Inch Spikes. Um, Thanks. 
here's another one. A nod to Freddy Krueger's nine-inch fingernails. <laughs> I like that one. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, the fact that the English letters N-I-N resemble the modern Hebrew characters of the Tetragrammaton. Do you know what the Tetragrammaton is? Is that like the, what do you call it, the understudy for the, the monster on Stranger Things? <laughs> The Demogorgon, the Demogorgon's understudy. The, tetra, was, the Tetragrammaton is the Demogorgon's understudy. He's like the nerdy guy who can't quite get his break in Hollywood. He's like, I'm not ugly enough. It's, just, <laughs> it's like sitting in front of the mirror going, ah, oh, gosh, I just have too much appeal. I'm just too sexy. <laughs> Look at these eyes. They kind of draw you in. He's hatching a, a, a plot to make the Demogorgon trip and break his tail uh, okay uh so you can finally get a shot no so the tetra tetragrammaton is a four-letter way to write out the name of god so it has to do with like yahweh or Yahweh. you may hear yeah. that okay right but when you say when you write out yahweh you don't use the vowels so it's y-w-h-w so or something like that so there is this like very intense theory that like it seems way overthinking it, but that like nine inch nails is meant to play on that, which would then be sort of this like God is dead sort of joke, right? Like it would be like a highbrow way of flipping the middle finger at religious thought. Anyway, I don't think it's any of those things. I really do think Trent Reznor just made it up. Uh, partly because he got the he made the logo very early, and the logo has become iconic, right? It's very closely associated. And if you see stuff from the very beginning of Nine Inch Nails, that logo was around. And he actually was inspired. He he had an artist create the logo, but his inspiration was the Talking Heads record. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 well, yeah. Just never. So next time you look at that one Talking Heads record, you're gonna be like, oh yeah, I like that. <laughs> I like that we somehow got directly from talking heads to Nine Inch Nails. Okay, so what is confirmed? Regardless of what we know about the name, truth or fiction, what is confirmed is that as Trent started getting traction and TVT took these demos and fiddled with them slightly and created a debut album that was called Pretty Hate Machine, they wanted to have MTV presence in the mix. So Trent needed to make some Nine Inch Nails videos uh-uh. and who was he going to get to help him turn his audio experience visual he'd recently seen a video by the band ministry that was called stigmata oh wow yeah well it's a that song that song definitely has a really interesting coda one of those life-changing songs when i heard it the first time for sure just because it didn't sound like anything you'd ever heard before correct Okay. Yeah. Well, similar experience for Trent, at least in the visual sense. When he saw the video, he he felt like it was something he hadn't seen before, I think, and he dug that. And I guess he thought it had the right vibes. And so he went looking for who had helped make that happen. And everything in his search came up H Gun Labs. So that is how Trent met Ben and Eric. The first Nine Inch Nails video ever was for a song called Down In It. Reznor's going to admit years later that Down In It was a blatant ripoff of a skinny puppy song he liked called Dig It. But the video, that's very unique. 
H-Gun was known for pushing the envelope with visual elements in their videos. And that's, I mean, it makes sense. That's why rock bands in particular like to hire them at the time, right? So this video has all that. It's got effects. It's got TVs falling down and forwards and backwards. It's got writing and lights. It's got flashing strobes. It's disorienting. But it also has a storyline, sort of. And in this video, Trent gets chased to the top of a building. And the idea is to make it look like Trent is chased off the building and that he falls to his death. So remember, Trent, Ben, Eric, on the way up, have done a few things, but they are not swimming in cash. So they're looking for what the Hollywood types now refer to as practical effects. How can you physically do something with your camera and not with computers? So, they cover Trent in cornstarch to make it sort of look like fake blood. And they have him lay down in this alley. And to get the badass aerial shot they want, which would show Trent dead on the ground for purposes of the video, they have this idea. Oh my gosh. They get some weather balloons and they tie them to an anchor point. And to the weather balloons, they tie a Super 8 camera attached and turned on. Pretty inventive idea, but problematic if the rope holding the weather balloons to its anchor point breaks. And that is exactly what happens. Wow. Remember how I said there's a third guy in the footage running away from the body? Yeah. Is that Trent Reznor? No, it's one of the filmmakers running to try to catch the camera. My gosh. That footage that the FBI has been pouring over for two years? It's a music video? It's unbelievable. So here's what happens. The FBI investigation drags on. And by the time they take that risky move of asking college kids if they've seen this victim, the down in it video is on MTV. Now, of course, the death centered ending isn't there because MTV makes an edit of it. But this college kid who answered the ad, he literally calls and he's like, yeah, I think that's the lead singer of this new band called the Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> For two years. It, I can see Chief Wiggum from The Simpsons walking out going, take them away, toys. I mean, take them away, boys. <laughs> and that, that is how Trent Reznor makes his first appearance on a show, his first and only appearance, for what I know, on a show called Hard Copy. A year after a film murder scene landed in a cornfield hundreds of miles from Chicago, police and FBI narrowed the case down to the victim's identity. They can be excused for wishing they'd never found him. Oh my gosh! He was on a hard copy. Okay, fun little side note. Not the only show that Trent and Nine Inch Nails debut on with this song down in it. That's it's, correct. What's the name of that show? The dance show. <laughs> I knew you were going to bring it. He lip syncs. I wrote, I wrote this it. in the notes because I was like, as soon as I start talking about hard copy, Mark's going to be like, we need to talk about Dance Party USA. <laughs> dance Party USA. I was like, it can't be that stupid, but that's really the name of that freaking show. Nine Inch Nails with Down In It. I didn't know about Dance Party USA because I think I was a little too young. I need you to fill in everyone on what dance because I just watched. I watched this video, which is in the show notes. 
And I gotta say, the greatest part of this is that, like, this sort of looks like white people lame soul train. Like, is that sort of what it was? I was going to say, <laughs> just to spare, save time, because we've done a lot of stuff here, um, it's Bush League American Bandstand. And so it's like... But edgier, but also lamer. So I guess it was, like, sort of known to be sort of stupid and, and disrespected, at least by, like you know, musical, musical it, folks like a Trent Reznor of the world, it, right? It was, I think it was on USA. And, it know, was. Band, bandstand was on like ABC. Right, Soul right, Train, right. Soul Train was a syndicated, so it was on TBS. So I think typically there were like dance artists that would guess on the show, but at some point Trent Reznor made some sort of comment somewhere publicly where he said, someone was like, what TV show would you want to be on if you could be on any show with the Nine Inch Nails. And he was like, I want to be on Dance Party USA. Like, just to be an ass, he said that. And then, somehow, he gets booked on Dance Party USA. And they do. It's a full-on lip sync. And it's bizarre because it's spliced with, like, people just basically like, like, uh, like a boy and a girl. Like, if you've ever seen the episode of Friends where they do the New Year's Eve countdown and like Ross and Monica, it's like their lifelong dream to be on this New Year's Eve countdown and they have to do the fake dancing. It's like that. They're like doing fake dancing to this Nine Inch Nails song. It is wild and highly recommended. You need to it, you need to go watch it. It sure is something. Another fun thing worth mentioning in this, back to the video that we're talking about, the Nine Inch Nails video, in the Down In It video, those two guys who everyone thought were in a gang and killing Trent Reznor, yeah. those dudes are Chris Vrenna and Richard Patrick, who were playing with Trent at the time and will, for several years at different periods, sort of be in Nine Inch Nails. I mean, Nine Inch Nails is always Trent, but he has people that are helping him. But Richard Patrick is best known as the lead singer of the band Filter. Yes, right. Far and, out. and Chris Vrenna will go on to drum for Marilyn Manson. He's behind the kit for Gnarls Barkley's monster hit, Crazy. He actually oh. plays the drums on that record. And now he teaches at a community college in Alabama. <laughs> there is an awesome profile on him from like alabama.com that I do have in the show notes if you just want to go read something fun because uh, it's good. What a weird place to pick up community college after all of that. Right. Like of all, the, like I get like, hey, I'm in L.A. doing, you know, L.A. community college or whatever but like alabama okay so before we finish let's talk about let's get back for a second and get serious about nine inch nails let's talk about what this really sets up for trent reznor and nine inch nails if you're going to list defining characteristics of their career in more words than just drugs and controversy you're probably going to start with the reputation that they earned around video he wastes no time creating massive lore around himself as a provocateur. And by 1992, he hires the guy from Throbbing Gristle to make this film project for the Broken EP. Do you know much about this story? Um, yes, and I love the Broken EP. Have you seen this, this movie? I, I lived with someone who was obsessed with Trent Reznor, and I've had to watch all these things. Oh, my God, dude. So, it, like, you can tell us about it then, but basically... It's very hard to this day to find this. And it is, I mean, even Trent Reznor thought it was a little too much to put out into the market. So he sort of, now that's what he says. I think he also created this, again, created this lore um, about himself and about the band by publicly sort of opposing this thing. But he basically gets this tape back from, he hires, he commissions the guy from Throbbing Gristle and he's like, 
hey, will you make this film for the music? And the guy comes back to him and he's like, I made this, but you might not like it. And then it's like essentially a snuff film. Yeah. So you've, like, you've actually watched it. Yeah, yeah. I've seen that. And then we I guess it was still VHS. We had all the videos. So I used to watch all the Nine Inch Nails videos because, you know, they were they were considered to be really excellent. Um, you know, they're like it was real, like edgy for everything at the time. Well, I mean, the another video to talk about in this conversation after the broken EP is closer, which yeah. on most lists of greatest videos of all time is in the top ten somewhere. Depending on the publication, it might be one, two, or three, or it might be seven, eight, or nine. But it's usually in the conversation. Yeah, I think "Wish" is a better song. And also on that broken EP, by the way, there's a hidden track. Do you know about the hidden track? No. The broken EP. No, hit me. Oh, Brian. It's um, You're So Physical by Adam Ant. Oh, yeah. Okay, so you know what he did, too, with these? It, this is, the, again, the lore around the broken EP is that this video project, he says, we're not going to put it out, but he dubs some copies on VHS, and then he gives them to a few select people, but what he doesn't tell anyone that he gives it to is that he has made each one of them have a custom cut in it so that if it leaks, he knows who leaked it. Oh, wow. So while what I read did not say it was Doug or (laughs) I don't know who it was that leaked it, but apparently Trent does. But what happened too? the other thing that made the added to the lore of the broken video project is that it was on VHS. So it got degraded every time you copied it. So if the only way to get it was to copy it and it got a little shittier to watch every time you copied it by the end, it's really spooky because these images of people, you know, looking like they're getting hung and having stuff poked in them and like just awful stuff is now like, a little, a little grainy. grainy. Yeah. And and crazy looking. Yeah. Yeah. What one more Resner anecdote to tell to sort of wrap things up when we talk about him shocking and being a provocateur is two thousand five. He drops out of the MTV Music Awards. Do you remember this? No, I thought you were gonna go to Woodstock. You went straight there. Yeah, no, we ahead. can talk about Woodstock if you want, but in, in two thousand five he's going to be on the MTV video music awards and he's going to perform the hand that feeds. And he shows up with a backdrop. That is a picture of George W. Bush. Remember, remember the quaint old days of when rock musicians would, would do that, would protest George W. Bush. Like he was the worst thing that could happen to this country. Right. And so with the backdrop, they were, yeah, they, so so they, they said we don't want to we don't want to do something so partisan. They asked him to not do it. So it's, I mean, this is this is ballsy because this is after the Dixie Chicks, right? Which we've never talked about on this show. Right. Maybe we should, right? Um, you, you know, Rage Against the Machine has never got to do SNL, but once. Same sort of thing. That American flag oh, that was like right. upside down, or right? So uh, might have lit it on fire. I don't know. I've never really seen it. I don't remember it now. What was fun is. And I, I don't think I wrote this actually down, but there is a quote from when they told Trent Reznor he couldn't do that. And he just said, I'm not going to perform. Like he let out a statement, I'm not going to perform because apparently MTV finds a picture of our president 
as disgusting as I do or something like that. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> he, of course, again, even took this opportunity to push the envelope a little bit. But yeah, okay, you want to talk about Woodstock? Yeah, if you like, if you hadn't seen it or if it was like out of your purview of the time or whatever, um, he he didn't want to do that gig, but they, I mean, this is 94, right? And that was a half million dollars. So, you know, and, and I, I read a thing where he said like, you know, even at the time, you would think that they were the biggest band in the world. Like they had no money. So that half million bucks was incredibly helpful to kind of just get them, get their tour to continue going because the tour was expensive. Um, but if you haven't seen that, the not Woodstock 94, Nine Inch Nails performance, like hit YouTube and see it. Larry Bud Melman from David Letterman introduces them. Totally weird. Um, and they're covered in mud because they got into a mud fight right before the show. Um, and so it looks completely freaking crazy. And there's a scene right at the very beginning, right when uh, they're getting ready to play Terrible Lie. That's the first song they play. And the house lights kind of goes out, you know, amongst ho however many hundreds of thousands of people there were. And you hear like everyone scream at the same time. And it was some freaking powerful stuff, like way more powerful than Limp Biscuit, I'd say. But it's worth watching. So if you like Nine Inch Nails, the Woodstock 94 uh, performance is really fantastic. It's epic to watch epic to listen to if we missed something about nine inch nails which i'm sure we did because there's a lot to cover and i wanted to mostly focus on this hilarious story from the very beginnings uh feel free to to get involved in the show by hitting up that email address that we mentioned earlier we are the story guys at gmail.com get involved at the website we are the story guys.com uh leave comments reviews that sort of thing wherever you download the show from because it does help spread the word we appreciate you so much and uh, until next time Murdoch is Keep in. telling stories. That's what I thought. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.